Amen. Well, thank you, Kevin. Well, good morning. Good to see you guys. Hey, how about that snow? Uh, it was great. Hey, uh, well, I was glad, I don't know if you were, but to see that I didn't have a foot of snow outside my front door this morning. And if you are not that person, my apologies to you. Fear not, there will come a time when that will happen. Or you can travel a little bit north and you'll get that this morning. Now, one of the things I woke up with this morning, not only is not snow uh, around my world, but also, you ever get um, hit in the face with like a basketball at full speed when you weren't expecting it? Ever have that phenomenon, your face feels like a watermelon all of a sudden and I woke up with my eyes almost swollen shut this morning. It was a very interesting phenomenon. I had some kind of allergic reaction, and hives started growing down my neck and all that, and this is actually a true story. And uh, I thought, well, this is good. This will be a fun time this morning. So I, I decided to go academic with you, put my glasses on this morning, and, and bring to you the best academic side of what I have this morning, simply because I can't wear my contacts and can't really do all that anyhow. So it's, it's good to see you, and if you're not used to seeing me in this way, this is where that, that has come from. My hope is even after the two Benadryl that I popped this morning, which usually gives me a ton of energy, right? That, that this will uh, be, be not a distraction at all, but will be an opportunity to come together to see who God is this morning. Because that's my hope this morning, as it is every morning, that as Kevin said and Greg said, wherever you come from, whatever is going on in your world, we want to be able to come together in whatever condition we're in and see again who God is. And so I'm very hopeful that that will happen. That's what I'm looking forward to this morning. Well, you found yourself with us here in what is actually part three of a six-part series we're calling The Biggest Thought That You'll Ever Think. And the idea behind this is not just to think little thoughts, but to think big thoughts, because as I said in the series, that ideas drive innovation, but big ideas drive transformation. So the idea that you can have a small idea here or there about how to innovate around kind of the corners of your life is actually a good idea, and it's a good principle for personal change. Making small habit changes actually is good in the long run and you'll become something more. But there's also some times when big ideas are needed to transform an entire industry, to transform an entire way that, that people think about church, to transform an entire way that you think about who you are and who you stand before, how you stand before God. And so if big ideas, um, if the biggest thought that you'll ever think is the thought you think of when you think of God, this to me is a really big idea that can actually drive transformation in your life, that can change for you how you see everything in your world. We're building this series off of uh, Romans 12, really, verse 2, and in there Paul says, do not be conformed any longer or do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you will be able to test and prove what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And in this verse, we've seen that we want to be transformed, but that being transformed isn't something you wake up and do. I don't wake up and say, today I'm going to be transformed. The doing part of this verse is the renewal of the mind, that the renewal is the catalyst for transformation. That's what drives transformation. The way that I think about the world differently transforms how I see everyone around me. And this verse leads into a beautiful uh, promise here at the end. Then you'll be able to test and improve what God's will is. If you want to know what to do in every stage of your life, if you want to know how to handle your relationships, your future, your present, then here's what Paul is saying. Then if you want to know how to test and improve what God's will is, then renew your mind. Daily, regularly, habitually, renew your mind. Think big thoughts again about how the world works and who God is. So in this series, The Biggest Thought You'll Ever Think, what I'm trying to do with you is to uh, open up to you a new way to see how God has revealed himself in the scriptures. There's a million ways you can approach talking about God. The topic is so huge that it's sometimes difficult or dangerous to talk about because when you're talking about something so big, are you actually able to give people handles on anything because of the massive scope of God? So what 
what I'm trying to do, and we started last week, is try to introduce to you essentially five chapters in the, in the revelation of the scriptures in the Bible. And last week in chapter one, we looked at God and creation. In the beginning, God created. And then God created, and then he immediately judged mankind for their failure. There was a simple rule in the garden, and Adam and Eve didn't follow it. So we saw last week that God is both a creator who's created everything around us and also a judge. And then we saw that he began to make a covenant or a promise with Abraham, that God establishes himself as a creator and a judge and a promise keeper, a promise making God. This morning, we're going to get into one of the other huge um, historical figures in the Old Testament named Moses. And Moses' story, if you've been around in, in church at all, you might know the story. If you haven't been around, no problem at all. But Moses was an interesting guy, and his, his life kind of breaks out into three groups of 40 years. The first 40 years of Moses uh, was that he was a transplant. He was an Israelite living in Egypt. And the nation of Israel had been in Egypt's uh, reign under their uh, control for about 400 years at this point. Now, I don't know what you think wins or losses are, but if you think about um, a people group being in subjection to another people group for 400 years, I would say that Israel was losing. Okay? They were in a position where things weren't going well for them generation upon generation upon generation were living and dying in captivity, which is an interesting problem because just a few years ago, a few years ago, God had made this crazy promise to Abraham that we talked about last week in which God said to Abraham, I'm going to bless you and through you and your seed, all of the people at all time will be blessed. You will be a great nation and everyone will be blessed because of you. And now for years, generation upon generation upon generation, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, great-great-great-grandchildren, on and on, over 400 years of people lived and died in captivity. I wouldn't call that a great nation. I simply wouldn't. I don't think anyone would. It's a fair question to ask is where is this promise keeping God when the people of Israel are losing, when things aren't going well for them, when they are stuck, and when there is no hope, and actually what happens is they continue to be in exile, they, not exile, they continue to be uh, in servitude to Egypt. What happens then? Well, we pick up the story there where Moses, this, this uh, young uh, Israelite, is saved from the Nile River by the Egyptian princess, essentially. Taken home and uh, grows up for 40 years, grows up and is raised in Pharaoh's court. And if you know the story, you know that at one point, Moses realizes who he really is, and in anger, he kills an Egyptian guard or ruler, security officer, working over the people of the nation of Israel as they were working for Pharaoh. And he fled Egypt out of fear for his life. In the next 40 years in Moses' life, is spent in the wilderness, essentially, away from, separate from the nation of Egypt and kind of on the run. And many people believe, and I would be one of them, that in that 40 years, God did a work in Moses' heart. He used those years of development to help him get ready for the next 40 years, which would be one of the greatest acts of leadership that I've seen in the pages of Scripture. Taking someone named Moses who it, according to his own words, was not a good public speaker, not a good communicator, someone who ran when things got hard. God used him actually to lead a transformation, to lead the exodus of the nation of Israel out from under Egypt. And what God did is he met with him one day in the burning bush of all places. In the wilderness, there's a bush and God's presence appears and that bush catches fire but doesn't burn up. And Moses takes his sandals off and comes toward that bush, and God speaks, his voice speaks out of that bush and speaks to Moses. And Moses realizes that this is beyond his pay grade, what he's experiencing right now, and so he responds. And God introduces himself in that burning bush in a brand new way to Moses. 
And he calls himself, I am. He says, I am going to send you. I am who I am is who is talking to you. Because Moses wanted to know, God, if I go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go, he's going to ask, who sent you? I can't just tell him, well, a bush did. That doesn't go well. Tell him, I am who I am sent you. And that title for God of the great I am becomes one of the strongest, clear titles of deity throughout the entire scriptures. In fact, when Jesus walks the planet later on, he says seven different times when he's walking the planet, he says, I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and life. I am the good shepherd. I am the way. I am the gate. And he seven different times connects his story to the story of the great I am revealing himself to Moses. And the great I am reveals himself to Moses and says, go to Egypt and let my people go and convince Pharaoh to let my people go. So Moses treks back to Pharaoh ultimately after connecting with Aaron and inviting Aaron to be the spokesman for him. And, and they're, they're uh, trying to get the nation of Israel to be let go from under Egypt's control. And it's harder than one would think. Pharaoh's pushing back. He's experiencing hardship, Moses is. He's having a hard time getting this thing to work. And this is where we pick up the story in Exodus chapter 6. I'm going to throw the verses up here this morning because I'm going to cover several of them this morning, but you're welcome to look them up in your own Bible if you'd like. Or, but I'm going to put them up here just this morning. But in Exodus chapter 6, Moses has just returned from trying to convince Pharaoh to let his people go and to no avail. Uh, Pharaoh is pushing back hard on him. And here's what God says is kind of a pep talk and a reminder to Moses. It's a very profound couple of verses here. God says this, I am the Lord, in parentheses, these are my words, these aren't in the English, but they are the Hebrew words for God. I am the Lord, and that word is Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. That Hebrew word there is El Shaddai. That's how I appear to them. And then he says this, but, in contrast, but, in contrast to the patriarchs there, but by my name, the Lord, that is Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. This is a very interesting transition. If you want to know how God reveals himself to people in the course of time, this is one of those key markers in the history of the nation of Israel as God is revealing who he is to people. This space, God is saying, Moses, the people who went before you, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they knew me as the powerful God. They knew me as the one who created. They knew me as the one who judged in creation. They knew me as the one who could control all things. They knew me as the one who established a covenant with Abraham. They knew me with power almighty, God almighty. But by my name, Yahweh, I didn't make myself known to them that way, like I am to you. So in other words, Moses, new revelation of myself to you in this space. In the Hebrew scriptures, the word Yahweh shows up less than a hundred times in Genesis, but over 6,700 times from that point on. The use of the word Yahweh triples and then quadruples in the next books that are to come. That indeed, all of a sudden, God is revealing himself as Yahweh from this moment on, and it begs the question, why? Why would God reveal himself as Yahweh now, and what does it mean? Why would he do this, and what does it mean? Now, the best scholars among us actually have no idea what Yahweh really means, which is about par for the course, and that is 
How do you actually put words around the definition of something like God or Yahweh? We could say that he's the eternally existent one, but what I think is most helpful is that God chooses this moment, he chooses this time in Israel's history to reveal himself this way. To me, the most important thing to see here is that God takes this time when the people of Israel are in captivity for over 400 years, and he says, Moses... I am with you. That Yahweh is revealed in a period of time where the nation of Israel needed to know, is God not only powerful, but is he here? Is he present in the suffering? Can he, as Greg alluded to earlier, be not just powerful out there, but powerful in here? Can he know what I am going through, and is he going to be present to redeem this situation, this moment, this part of our lives? And this is what I believe is the most important thing to pick up in this story, that as God, Yahweh, over the course of working with Egypt and removing the Israelites from them, encounters about 10 different Egyptian gods in which he overcomes each one of them. You might know them as the plagues, the boils, the frogs, the darkness, the river Nile turned to blood, the death of the firstborn. All of those are associated with different Egyptian gods. And what Yahweh is doing in this space is he's saying, I'm going to remove my people. I am going to be now present in your suffering. I'm not just a God Almighty who is powerful. I am now here. And any other God, any other God that is here is going to come under my rule. I am here. I am the eternally existent one is here in your suffering. I see it. And I will not let you continue to be in that space. And so God's purpose is declared loudly through this moment that he is a deliverer that he is a deliverer who is present with and pulls you through things that you need delivered from. This is, I believe, the revelation of Yahweh to Moses, to the people of Israel, and to us. To see that God is not just El Shaddai, but that he is indeed Yahweh, present, working with us through suffering. On the heels of the nation of Israel coming out of Egypt's control, there's a little thing that you may have heard of called the Ten Commandments. That is actually revealed in Exodus. The Ten Commandments come as a result of the nation of Israel redefining themselves in the wilderness. Who are we now and how should we relate to this God that we serve? And the very first commandment that we see is in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 3. And God begins this way, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. In the context of being removed from the nation of Egypt, where all those ten gods and Pharaoh himself as positioning himself as God, is subdued, this only makes sense. It only makes sense that God were to say, let me start this way, in case it's not clear what I've just done in removing you from a place that you were stuck in for generation upon generation. I want to tell you, you shall have no other gods before me. The reason is because it's going to be a waste of your time to pursue any other gods. Because I love you enough, I'm going to tell you, don't spend your time worshiping the sun god. It's just not worth it. I'm going to tell you, don't spend your time worshiping any other gods around here. It just isn't worth it. Like, why would you have any other god before me than me? Now, this may come off as conceited as it would if I said it, but it isn't boasting if it's true here, is it? This is just a statement of, I am who I am is the most powerful. I am here. 
And then God introduces himself in a different way to the nation of Israel, in a way that I would argue that if you grew up in Lancaster County or maybe just grew up in a conservative church on the whole, that you are actually very familiar with the way God is introduced next. Because God introduces himself next in the book of Leviticus in a way that even those who, some who have walked from church feel like this is who God is. Uh, now we're getting to the real part of who God is. And he says this in Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44. He says, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. In other words, if you've grown up in church at all, you've probably known of God or felt, if you didn't verbalize it, that God is a God of holiness. He's got standards. There's certain things that you can wear and can't wear. There's certain things it's kind of okay to say under your breath when the eagles are playing, but don't you dare say that in the lobby of the church or else we have a problem, right? Like there are certain things that God has for you to do and certain things that he doesn't have for you to do. And some of us have just grown up knowing, kind of thinking, this is who God is. He's a holy God, and I dare not do anything unholy. And some of us have had experiences with people who have reminded us that is not a holy, a right, or a righteous thing to do. And that your faith relationship with God has been primarily based upon, are you keeping enough of the Ten Commandments? Are you keeping enough of the moral and ethical standards? And is God as the judge and the Holy One going to look at you and see that you are righteous enough? And verses like this seem to support this point. Consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. Now, it's important that, it's very important that we understand the holiness of God in connection to the power of God. Let me give you this illustration. Um, if you're a, a parent, you have a small child, that small child doesn't know a lot of things yet that you know. And one of the things, I'm going to use a classic illustration of the hot stove. Has anyone here ever just placed their burner on, their hand on the burner of the stove for the fun of it? Any, any kid that ever happened to you? We use this all the time, but I don't know how many kids actually do that. This is my, this is my test here, right? But you can imagine as a parent, one of the things you teach your kids and you know is don't reach up on the stove as they're learning to walk and they're kind of pulling up on things or they're just playing. Reaching up on the stove, on the burner, is just a categorical no. Right? I mean, it is. It's a standard in your home, and the reason you have that is not because you hate your children. In fact, it's quite the opposite. The reason that you have that standard, it's not really, this is not a discussion point. We are not going to talk about whether you should or shouldn't put your hand on the burner. We're not even going to discuss it. Does it make you angry? I'm sorry. You're going to cry and throw a tantrum about it? That's a bummer. You're going to get more discipline for that, maybe. But listen, we aren't going to do this. Bottom line, we're just not going to put our hand on the burner. It goes further than that. When you have two kids or three or maybe you have 18 children in your home, I don't know. When your siblings fight with each other, when your children fight with each other, you know categorically it is not a good idea. We are not in our home going to punch each other in the face when someone takes my toys. We're just, we're just not going to do that. There isn't really going to be a reason where I'm going to look around and say, you know what, Junior? That was a good idea. He needed that. Like, Nope. Categorically, there's no punching in the house. Right? Just categorical deal. We all have, as parents, we all have just categorical standards that we just say, we're not even going to discuss this. There isn't a scenario where this is going to be okay. And the reason is because I know better than you, Junior. I know better than you. It's going to be a waste of your time, waste of your energy. It's going to hurt you if you touch the stove. It's going to be a bad thing for your future if you punch your brother. We are just not going to do that. Those are standards of holiness. Those are standards that set you apart. Those are standards of righteousness that come from not, not a heart of wanting to ruin your children, but of setting them up for the best possible future. 
because you as a parent have more awareness, power, and understanding than they do at that time. So God's standards of holiness are built on, is built on his power to deliver. Because God delivered the people of Israel from Egypt, because he was the strongest to pull them out, and he demonstrated there would be no other gods before me. In case you're not remembering that, remember what just happened in Egypt. There's no other gods that stood before me. Remind me which one stood up to me again. Remind me which one I wasn't able to overcome. Does anyone have anything there? Okay, I didn't think so. So because of that, I'm going to tell you that there are certain things that you need to do because I love you, not because I want to place a burden, a weight of religion on you, but because I love you as a father loves his children. These are things we're just not really going to discuss that you're not going to do. It's going to be a waste of your time to put any other gods before me. Just not going to be a good idea. This isn't a good idea at all. Now, Here's the problem with God's standards, as is the problem with parent standards. There are some times when you can't help but punch your brother, right, as a kid. You just can't help it, like, kind of, you can, but it feels like you can't. It feels like, oh, but dad, you have no idea, they did this again, I told them not to do it again, and you just punch your brother. The problem is, we can't even keep our own standards, let alone God's. And so whenever someone puts standards on you, including God puts standards on you, we are set up to fail. We are set up to fail. Just guaranteed. You know how this works. The speed limit is posted 35. Of course, we're going to go 40 or 45 or 90, depending on you know, how you're feeling that time. That whenever we have standards, we are set up to fail. We can't keep our own standards, let alone God's. And so in this world, God sets these standards in the book of Leviticus, in, in Exodus, and then into Leviticus especially, to say this is how you're to live. These are the foods you're to eat, the clothes you're to wear. This is how you're supposed to deal with clean and unclean issues. This is how you're supposed to do it. And inevitably, we are going to fail, and the people of Israel failed. And so the question is, what do you do when you fail at God's standards? What do you do with that? Because we are going to. And here's what we see in in the book of Leviticus, chapter 17. God gives them a way out. He says, For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. He's saying, I'm going to give to you this whole sacrificial system in the, in the books of Leviticus and then even into Numbers and Deuteronomy, but you're going to see this expressed, that I am the powerful present deliverer. There are things that I want you to do now because of who I am and present with your suffering and pain. The things I want you to do, I know you're not going to be able to do them. Like Before you even fail, I'm going to set up the system of grace so that you are going to be restored because I know you can't keep them. It's impossible. So because of that, I'm going to give you a way out. And the way out is going to be through the sacrificial system, through the animal sacrifices, through the ritual worship of the nation of Israel. This is how God is revealing himself as a God who is most powerful and present, as a God who does have standards and cares, and as a God who immediately gives us a way out when we fail. The God of grace through all of this. It's a very intriguing picture. To wrap it all up, I'll put it this way, that, that God is the powerful deliverer, who calls for obedience and then gives a way forward when we fail. This is how I see God being revealed in the time period of Moses. He is the powerful and present deliverer who calls for obedience and then gives us a way forward when we fail. Now, with all that being said, I'm going to ask this. Let me put it this way. There comes a time for all of us, for all of us. At some point, we all need delivered from something. At some point, you, at some point, me, need delivered from something. 
And for you, that could be a thing in the past, or it could be a thing in the present, or it could be a thing in the future. At some point, all of us need delivered from something. Whether it's when I look in the mirror and I see who I am and what I wish I could be and the distance between that, whether I hear the voice of the critic going on in my brain, whether I have a history and a past that no one else knows about and the shame and guilt is there, whether it's in the present and I've entered into a relationship I'm not sure I should have and I'm afraid of where it's going but I'm too afraid to pull back from it now, whether it's anxiety about the future and the future of your business, whether it's going to succeed or not, how it's going to grow, what that's going to look like, and you have employees who work for you who did and you feel kind of bad about that, maybe it's the future for your health, you're not sure what that looks like. Maybe it's the future of your own relationship with God that maybe it is flat right now. You wonder, is he even here? Does he hear anything? And does he hear prayers at all? Can I connect with him at all? And you're not sure about that. I will tell you, and you know this, at some point we all need delivered from something. At some point we all find ourselves in a position, not unlike the Israelites, where we wonder, is there a God who did promise? I mean, good grief, for 430 years it doesn't seem like we're going to be a great nation. It doesn't seem like you're here. It doesn't seem like you're present. And in that time period, Moses... God reveals himself to Moses and say, Moses, when you're going through this pain, you're getting pushed back, I want to remind you, I'm the God who is present. I'm here with you. I'm here walking with you through the suffering. I am going to be a present deliverer for you in some way, shape, and form. And I'm going to work with you here. Is it enough that God is El Shaddai, all-powerful out there, or is it also true that he is Yahweh, the eternal one present in the present, in the suffering, in the middle of it all? So we have all kinds of struggles and sufferings that we have. We also have, by the way, all kinds of little gods that we worship to get out of them. Now, we may not think about it that way, but is it not true that as you face the struggles that you face and you face the anxieties you face around your future, your marriage, your relationships, whatever it is, there's all kinds of little gods that I can chase to help me get through. There's coping mechanisms. There's performance, just flat out work harder than someone else and you won't have to think about your your past. There's beauty. Just doll yourself up a little bit more in the mirror, and maybe if you look beautiful enough on Instagram or Vista or whatever it might be, that you know, you're going to be fine. There's strength, simply being stronger at things than other people. There's wisdom, simply saying, I'm just going to learn my way through this life. There's avoidance. There's busyness. There's withdrawal. There's anger. There's attacking. There's all kinds of ways to work your way through the struggles that you are facing that are here. And they are not unlike the gods of the Egyptians. They'll work for a little while, but ultimately there is no solution other than to say, Yahweh, the powerful, most present, most powerful God is here in the room. So I asked myself this question, and I want to consider, give you a chance to ask this question too. If I really believed, if I really actually believed that God were present and my powerful deliverer, how would I act? If I really believed God were my present and powerful deliverer, how would I actually act? If when I look in the mirror, when I think about my future, when I'm processing my past and my present and my future, when I'm thinking about the things that are, that are working on me, that I'm struggling to get through, if I actually believe that, If I actually believe the God who showed up in the burning bush, who showed up in the time of Israel and Egypt, if I actually believe that Yahweh, the eternal one, is here, come on, how would I actually act now? What would I tell myself in the mirror? What would I tell myself in the private thoughts before I lay my head down at the pillow at night? Would I I trust more? Would I all of a sudden be courageous? (laughs) What would I have to lose? What in the world do you have to lose? What do you have to lose? What do you have to lose if you decided that I'm going to put my faith and trust 
in God more for this? What do you have to lose? If God is actually a present deliverer, if he actually is one who is present in the moment, what fear is too big for him to handle? What anxiety is too strong that he can't untangle that? What possible future that you might be thinking about would he say, oh, shoot, you're right, yeah, I wouldn't do that. I'm not sure I can handle walking with you through that one. If God actually was, if he actually is my present and powerful deliverer, how would I then act today? See, this is a story of God revealing himself through Moses. He said, you know, Moses, I used to reveal myself in the, the patriarchs as one who was just strong. But to you now, Moses, and from here on out, I want to give you something new about who I am. I'm Yahweh. I'm the God who's eternal but present, who delivers, who redeems people through their suffering and through their struggle. And I'm right here with you. There is no other God before me. And so don't put one there. And when you fail, and you will, there's going to be a way forward. The sacrificial system previews the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross of Jesus Christ now is our ultimate sacrifice that we, in this day and age, no longer have to sacrifice, but lean into the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ, that we may be right with God. So, if you actually believed that God was your present and powerful redeemer and deliverer, how would, how would you actually act? Well, years went by in the story of Moses and the nation of Israel, and the books are written, and Moses, we believe, wrote them, Genesis and Exodus, where we really were today, Leviticus, we were a little bit, and then the Numbers, and most people fell asleep in Numbers, so we wrote Deuteronomy and woke up in Deuteronomy. And in the book of Deuteronomy, as the people of Israel have gone through the wilderness and all that, and they've, um, they've lost some of their history, some of their heritage, the people are regathered. And it's kind of a final reminder of who God was because they, like we, have a tendency to forget where God has worked in the past. Here's what we read in Deuteronomy chapter 7 as the, the new generation is being addressed. Know, therefore, the verse begins. Know, therefore. In other words, in light of all that you could think and in light of all of the ways that you could think about God, I want you to have confidence in, and to know, therefore, this about God in Deuteronomy 7, verse 9. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commands. Know, therefore, that God is a faithful God. He is present with you. He can handle your anxiety. He can handle the struggles. He can handle the unknown. He can handle your children's struggles. He can handle yours. Know, therefore, that God keeps this covenant of love to a thousand generations, because this is who Yahweh is, the present redeemer and deliverer. This is how God reveals himself, not only in creation, but also to Moses. Next week, we get to pick up to see how God reveals himself even more in the fiery land of the prophets before we get into the New Testament. Know, therefore, God the Deliverer is present. He is here, and he keeps his covenant of love to a thousand generations. How would you act if you actually believed God, your present Deliverer, was right here with you? Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the chance to be in your word this morning and to see through this story again how you reveal yourself through the nation of Israel, through Moses and his life and his leadership.
I do pray for us that we would continue in the, the hardest and most intimate times in our own hearts where we struggle with our own uh, sense of awareness of both who you are and how we are to function in this world, that you would give us the uh, courage to remind ourselves again that you are indeed a God who is present, that Yahweh is here, that you are a deliverer, and you don't always deliver in the way we expect, nor in the time that we expect. And so sometimes that throws us way off. We expect a deliverance by the morning, and sometimes you wait decades or more, and we don't understand that. But we want to submit to that and recognize that we are not God, that you are. And so we want to come under that and know and appeal to this fact that you are indeed a deliverer who is present. And even in the middle of our suffering, even in the middle of our anxiety and tension, in the middle of the pain and struggle of whatever we are facing, that there is a God who is here. And that this is what we see as you revealed yourself to Moses and the nation of Israel and now to us. So we thank you that you are a God who is strong, powerful, mighty, and all-loving. Help us, I pray, to be confident in our trust in you, that we will know, therefore, that you are a God keeping your covenant of love to a thousand generations. We love you and thank you for the time we can share this morning. In Jesus' name.